Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 16 to 23. This is God's word for us this morning. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Will you pray with me? Father, your word is good, and I know you have grace for us to hear and to consider this day. So help us, Lord. Help us that we might magnify you and know you better and uh, give you glory. Be changed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. In his book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, John MacArthur tells this story, and I think it helps us to get started here. So just listen to the story as we begin. He writes, a pastor that I know of was conducting a series of meetings in several churches in North and South Carolina. He was staying in the home of some close friends in Asheville and traveling each night to where he was speaking that evening. One night, he was scheduled to speak at a church in Greenville, South Carolina, which is several hours from Asheville. Because he didn't have a car, some friends from Greenville offered to transport him to and from the meeting. When when they arrived to pick him up, He bid farewell to his hosts and told them he hoped to be back by midnight or soon afterward. After ministering at the Greenville Church, he stayed a while to enjoy some fellowship and then rode back to Asheville. Approaching the house, he saw the porch light on and assumed his hosts would be prepared for his arrival because he had discussed the time of his return with them. As he got out of the car, he made what I would consider a classic mistake. As he got out of the car, he sent his driver on his way saying, You must hurry. You have a long drive back. I'm sure they're prepared for me. I'll have no problem. He felt the bitter cold of the winter night as he walked the long distance to the house. By the time he reached the porch, his nose and ears were already numb. He tapped gently on the door, but no one answered. He tapped a little harder, and then even harder, but still no reply. Finally, concerned about the intense cold, he beat on the kitchen door and on a side window, but there was still no response. Frustrated and becoming colder by the moment, he decided to walk to a neighboring house so he could call and awaken his hosts. 
On the way, he realized that knocking on someone's door after midnight wasn't a safe thing to do. So he decided to find a public telephone. It was as dark as it was cold, and the pastor wasn't familiar with the area. Consequently, he walked for several miles. At one point, he slipped in the wet grass growing beside the road and slid down a bank into two feet of water. Soaked and nearly frozen, he crawled back up to the road and walked farther until he finally saw a blinking motel light. He awakened the manager, who was gracious enough to let him use the telephone. The bedraggled pastor made the call and said to his sleepy host, I hate to disturb you, but I I couldn't get anyone in the house to wake up. I'm several miles down the road at the motel. Could you come and get me? To which his host replied, My dear friend, you have a key in your overcoat pocket. Don't you remember? I gave it to you before you left. The pastor reached into his pocket, and sure enough, there was the key. MacArthur says that true story illustrates the predicament of Christians who try to gain access to God's blessings through human means, all the while possessing Christ, who is the key to every spiritual blessing. He alone fulfills the deepest longings of our hearts and supplies every spiritual resource we need. In our passage for today... We're going to see from Scripture a warning against trying to gain access to the blessings of God through human means. And I think we're going to be surprised at how easy it is for us to try to add in something else to the faith to take ourselves to the next spiritual level. And Lord willing, we'll also hear from God the antidote to practices like that. And by the way, that is all about clinging to Christ. So, if you're a note taker... Three points this morning. Point number one, cling to Christ and not religious legalism. Cling to Christ and not religious legalism. Look at verse 16 and 17 in your Bibles. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So here we find ourselves in the middle of a passage in a letter where the Apostle Paul was warning a local church to watch out for dangerous, man-centered kinds of thinking. Paul had never been to Colossae, at least not to that church there. Uh, Epaphras, his friend, brought him word about what was going on there. But Paul cared for these people that he'd never met. (coughs) Excuse me. And so he wrote down the things that God inspired here in order to help the people not to be led astray. And last week we saw Paul magnify the person and the finished work of Christ as an antidote to man-centered thinking. Paul showed us in verses 9 to 15 last week we saw Jesus is God who fills believers, that Jesus perfectly fulfills all righteousness for believers, that Jesus perfectly took the punishment that all believers deserve, and that Jesus is superior to all spiritual forces. And it's because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done that Paul is going to be able to go and get a little bit more specific and to warn the Colossians against both legalistic and mystical thinking. So before we get started in this, here's something you need to know. There are two kinds of legalism and neither one is acceptable for the Christian. On the one hand, legalism is a belief 
that you have to perform certain actions or do certain rituals or that you have to achieve a certain level of personal goodness in order to be made right with God. Let's call that religious legalism. Sort of having to meet the standard yourself through actions or rituals. But on the other hand, legalism involves the creation of rules or of standards that God didn't make. Making the rules of right living more strict than God made them himself. That we can call a form of moralistic legalism. Making up rules God didn't even come up with. So here in verses 16 and 17, Paul offers a caution not to let ourselves be judged by religious legalism, that first kind. Don't make up things to do, don't add things to do to make yourself right with God. And Paul specifically says not to let somebody else judge you based on issues related to food, drink, festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. Now, there's no particular religion in the world that we can find that has all those thoughts rolled together into one nice little package. And so the Colossians were probably facing a sort of false teaching that was combining multiple bad ways of thinking into one sloppy religion. And we experience that a lot today. There were people in and around Colossae who were just from this idea and pick from that idea and pick this religion and pick that religious concept. And they, they were bringing those things together and they were bundling them together into their own sort of self-made syncretistic religion. And so we start with restrictions on food and drink, right? I mean, and that could be some Old Testament Jewish law, dietary laws about what you could and couldn't eat. You couldn't have bacon back then. I'm glad. I thank God for the New Testament. As often as I can when it comes to this topic. Uh, but, but they also came up with some extra strict rules from other groups because they restricted not only what you could eat but what you could drink. And, and the, Jews, the Jewish religion had no restrictions against wine. But there were many groups like the Essene group that lived in Qumran that would, try, that would come up with extra commands and they would tell Christians that you had to follow the Jewish dietary laws or you even had to add a new strictness to, to other restrictions, restraining, refraining from any form of alcohol as a means to be purer than the world around you so that you could earn your way to the next spiritual level or into heaven and then they, they brought in festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. And those were religious holidays, religious observances, right? Festivals are those holy days that happened once every year. The Jewish calendar had them, right? Passover and Purim and, and, and the like. Or they were also would be special sacrifices that they would offer at the new moon, the beginning of the month, right? We want to make sure that this was a good month, so we'd have this special festival. And for some groups, they also had observance of the Sabbath. Which, of course, I mean, that's the most familiar thing to us, right? You, you couldn't work on that day. You had to, had to rest. You had to reflect what God did in creation. But now, all that together, those are, those are the things that people were saying. You've got to do this, 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 and this. You've got to eat right. You've got to drink right. You've got to have the right festivals. You've got to have the right new moon celebrations. You've got to have the right Sabbath observance or you're not in. Here's what we want to learn. God is telling us do not let yourself be judged by others based on these religious practices. 
Nobody is allowed to judge a Christian any longer on whether or not he eats foods that used to be called unclean in the Old Testament. Nobody can judge you if you like bacon or ham. This is good. Family camp could not happen if we were in the Old Testament. It just couldn't happen. Just, just so you know. Nobody has the right to tell somebody, listen, if you want to make it to heaven, you have to totally abstain from alcohol. Nobody has the right to demand that you observe the right religious feasts and holidays or the Sabbath in order to make it to heaven because none of those things are the way that anybody is ever made right with God. You're not made right with God by following religious rules. In verse 17, Paul says regulations like these were shadows of things to come, something bigger. Think about what a shadow is. A shadow is a dim picture, a dim reflection of something bigger. The, the Old Testament festivals and Sabbaths and things like that, they were a dim picture of the bigger story of God being unfolded. Because you know, laws related to these things, they pointed to the fact that the person of Jesus was coming to fulfill those laws. You might say, how does this, how does this work? Festivals were an easy way to see a depiction of something to come, right? The Passover was a ceremony where you sacrificed a lamb so that other people could live. That looks like Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus died so that we might live. Or the Sabbath observance, right? In the Old Testament, the Sabbath pointed to a resting from your labors and trusting God to provide. Well, Jesus Christ brings the people of God into the rest of God because Jesus has done all the work already. We cannot do any work to make ourselves right with God. Jesus did it, so we rest in Christ like those rested on the Sabbath. But you know, even the food laws of the Old Testament, those marked an Israelite as different than anybody else in the world, just as God spiritually marks believers by His Holy Spirit as being united with Christ. So what are we saying? What's this point about? Are we saying that believers no longer need to look different or live differently than the world? Not at all. We're always going to look and live differently than the world around us if we're in Christ. But here's what we're seeing. Any choice that we make to observe a holiday to participate in a ceremony, or to live differently than the world, has nothing to do with how somebody is made right with God. The rules point to the coming of Jesus. But once Jesus has come, we're not subjected to the rules as the way to get to God. We're not subjected to festivals as the way to get to God. And so what I'm calling us to is to cling to Christ and not to religious legalism. And, and what I'm saying here is that we need to realize that Jesus has already fulfilled every requirement of righteousness on your behalf. You don't go to heaven because you do something good. You go to heaven because Jesus did all the good already. But I'm doubting right now that many of you have been tempted recently to subject yourself to the Jewish dietary laws. Although I have heard of Christians trying to teach that way. I, true story, I did once hear Joel Osteen tell people that he was blessed because he wouldn't eat pepperoni. 
Look it up. Google it. It's out there. Actually, don't look it up and don't Google it. It's just not worth that. But y'all aren't feeling the, the urge to buy into the Jewish dietary laws, probably. And I'm guessing that many of you are not called to observe Passover to make yourself right with God. So how does this stuff apply here in the 21st century? Here's the point. Don't let yourself believe that anything you do or anything you religiously avoid makes you right before God. Being baptized. Should we be baptized? Of course we should. It's a command of God. But it doesn't save your soul. Participating in the Lord's Supper is a privilege and a responsibility of the Christian, but it does not rescue your soul. There is no ceremony that rescues your soul. There is no rule for you to follow that makes you a child of God. Only turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus in faith brings about salvation. And understand this. Any religion out there that adds requirements for salvation beyond faith in Jesus is cultic. So examine the claims of those who would teach you. Do they pretend that the way to be right with God includes faith in Jesus plus this ceremony or this activity? If they add something human or a sacrifice to the work of Christ, they cannot be trusted. I'll risk an aside here. I once heard a guy say this. You want to be able to identify an identify a cult, they do math. Which, for you math teachers, is really disturbing. (laughs) But what he said is, they add commands to God's word that God didn't give. They add a source of authority. Right? Or they subtract from the personal work of Jesus. Jesus, they say, wasn't quite enough on his own. So you've got to add your ceremonies. Or whatever. They, they multiply the requirements you have to fulfill to get into heaven. And they divide your loyalty from the word of God to other human leaders. That's what cults do, right? They add a source of authority. It's not just the word of God. It's also the Book of Mormon. It's also the prophecies of our 18th century prophet. It's also whatever else. They subtract from the personal work of Christ. Jesus wasn't God. He was a sub-God, a mini-God, a kind of God. His cross work wasn't enough. So we have to re-sacrifice him every time we have Lord's Supper. They multiply the requirements to get into heaven. Yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to participate in this, 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 and this if you really want to go to heaven. They divide your loyalty. Don't just trust the word of God. Here's our new human prophet to follow. That's cults. Okay, I didn't plan that one, but you get it, right? Now, get personal here for a second, because again, most of you aren't tempted to join a cult today. What is it that you think in your mind, if you're not careful, everybody's got to do if they're going to be right with God? What is it you think every Christian has to be committed to? What is it you you think is a religious practice is just required And then ask yourself this, is what I believe required by God? 
Or is it the tradition I have from my past experiences? We always do it this way. Christians do it this way. If you don't do it this way, you're not a Christian. Cling to Jesus, not religious legalism. Have faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. Yes, obey the clear commands of God. When God says don't commit adultery, you're not free to commit adultery. But don't think that your obedience, even to the command to come gather as a church, is what makes you right with God. Follow the word of God. But don't ever make salvation harder than God made it. Second point. Another cling to Christ, by the way. Cling to Christ and not charismatic mysticism. You spell it yourself, I don't care. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So if the people in Colossae were being infiltrated by the people who were saying, oh, do all the ceremonies to, to get right with God, they were even more being infiltrated by people who claimed a special level of spiritual experience and knowledge that would take you up to the next spiritual level. And Paul warns really strongly against these folks too. The warning here, similar to verse 16, right? Don't let people disqualify you by dragging you into their dangerous practices. And these people were first, the Bible says in ESV, insisting, insisting on asceticism. Now, do any of you guys have another translation for this verse? It'll, it'll say something other than asceticism, perhaps. Anybody got something like humility in your text? See, an ascetic person is a person who lives hard lives. Oh, I deny myself. Look at how humble I am. Oh, I don't even have a nice house because look at how humble I am. I won't eat that rich food because look at how humble I am. The idea of that asceticism there is false humility. There are often going to be dangerous leaders out there who will claim to be humble all the while they use their personalities and their false practices to influence you and to control you. And dangerous leaders in Colossae were also leading people toward the worship of angels. Can you believe that? Is it even possible to imagine that, well, that wise, you know, people that grew up in the church would get fascinated with angels maybe too much? Have you ever looked at the figurines in a Christian bookstore? Just saying. Somehow in Colossae, though, the, the, the spiritual leaders had managed to trick people into being so fascinated with the angelic realm that Christians were being tempted to credit angels with acts that only God could do. They were probably telling the Colossians that they needed to learn the higher spiritual knowledge so they could get the help of the angels. Again, read Christian fiction that gets fascinated with angels. Uh, no, don't. Again, I keep telling you to look stuff up, but then I realize you shouldn't. There's a lot of fiction out there that, man, what the angels are doing is the centerpiece. And, oh, if you just knew the names of the angels and the names of the demons, you could really get something done in your Christian walk. I remember the first time I read the Frank Peretti books on the angels and demons. 
And I've got to tell you, I had pictures of like Hulk Hogan in the ring from the old WWF days. <laughs> and when people prayed hard enough, the angels kind of hulk out and whoop up on the demons. But you know what? That's not far from what the Colossians were getting tempted to believe. And there's a lot of Christians that think that they have to get this right too. The next concept here is, is he's going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous minds. So these guys were dangerous, they were deceptive. They were saying, oh, I've seen these visions from God and now I know what you've got to do. It usually involves you donating money to my ministry, by the way. They were misleading people by their, their visions. They were falsely humble, but their egos were very, very inflated. And guys, charismatic church leaders do this. They act humble. Oh, I'm just a servant who's had a vision to tell you exactly where your money should go. So do it exactly the way I tell you because humble me, I've had a vision. Tie this all together and you'll see something really dangerous was happening. People who claimed to be humble, men who claimed to be humble, were fascinated by the spiritual side of the world and they misled people and they got people to worship angelic forces and they probably did it all by having supernatural, personal, spiritual experiences and they made people in Colossae want to have those experiences too. But what the church needed to realize is that these men, as verse 19 says, they were not holding fast to Jesus who's the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together if the joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. These men were not leading people to Jesus. They were letting go of Jesus. They were ripping the church away from Jesus to get to follow their visions. But Jesus is the head of the body. And if we're ever disconnected from him, we're disconnected from life. And again, the warning is applicable to us today because we need to be sure that we never let ourselves be led astray by anybody who pretends to be humble but who uses big, mystical, amazing spiritual experiences and visions to try to get people to follow Him. Instead, we need to cling to Jesus and cling to the perfect Word of God. And can I tell you Can I tell you that for you, this is more dangerous than you think. It wasn't long ago at all that I saw a note from a well-meaning Christian asking a question about a particular Christian group. And the first thing they said is, well, I know they're more charismatic than us, but I don't think that's a big deal. What about this, this, and this? You might say to yourself, I would never be led astray by a person claiming some sort of crazy vision. I would never be led astray to worship angels. But don't you know that the tactics are more subtle? Don't you know that our hearts are more easily drawn into this than you think? See, what a false teacher here would do to you is get you to hunger for a deeper spiritual life than you have right now. By the way, do you hunger for a deeper spiritual life than you have right now? Well, someone can play on that. So what this teacher will do, he'll be really humble. Oh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to offend you. But I want to present to you a Christian life that's more full, more rich, more spiritual than yours. And so now I'm going to get you to start wondering 
Why is it you don't hear the voice of God when I keep telling you God tells me this and God tells me that and God tells me this and God tells me that? And you start thinking, why don't I hear the voice of God like everybody in this little group hears the voice of God? You ever wondered if you're the only one who's not hearing it, by the way? Be honest, Christians. Have you ever wondered, why is it that people seem to hear something more than I hear? Why is it that everybody's experiencing these big gifts or feeling this leading that I'm not feeling? Is something wrong with me? Is, is it a gift I don't have? Am I not spiritual enough? And then before you know it, you find yourself trying the things that the teacher puts forward because you want to be sure that you're not somehow missing it. After all, you really want to know the will of God. And after all, you don't want to oppose the Holy Spirit. After all, you want to go deep with God. But Christians, can you see the danger? God has already given us every single thing we need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, as the Bible says in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. God has already spoken to us completely in His Word, breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be adequately equipped to do every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. God's Spirit indwells believers, as Paul already told the Colossians. We do not need a vision of revelation of God that's beyond God's Word. We don't need to seek a second filling of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to speak revelatory visions and dramatic spiritual charismatic gifts because we have Christ. We have the Word of God. And when you start hungering for the spiritual high of a charismatic experience, that's the way millions get led away from Christ and into the power of deceitful teachers. So Christians, if you want to grow in your faith, don't spend your heart seeking signs and miracles. Don't get fascinated by angels and demons. Instead, love God and love God's Word. Know that Christ is in you and that you have everything you'll ever need through Him. Cling to Christ and live to please God by the Word of God and God will give you the joy of knowing Him. I could go on and on about that topic for a long time. We should stop. Third point. Cling to Christ and not moralistic legalism. Verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental, the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if one form of legalism, like I said earlier, 
is to add duties and observances you got to do in order to make yourself pleasing to God. Another form of legalism is to develop a set of morals and rules that are more strict than God did. That telling people extra things not to do. And that was the sin of the Pharisees of Jesus' day, and it was part of the deception around Colossae too. And Paul says, don't, don't be, if you're alive to Christ, if you're not dead in your sins, don't let yourself be taught to add things, to create rules, to create morals God didn't make. Paul says, we died with Jesus. If you died with Jesus, you've been raised with Jesus. If you've been raised with Jesus, if you're alive with Jesus, you don't need to let yourself be enslaved by the basic elementary ideas of man-made religion. And the example, he gives us three regulations. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. These were likely the very prohibitions being set forth by the false teachers in Colossae. They focused on, again, what you're not allowed to eat, what you're not allowed to drink, what you're not allowed to touch, where you're not allowed to go. And they were rules God never actually made. And those people thought, man, if you get these things in your life, you're really going to look righteous. They demonstrated the self-righteousness of the people who followed them. And usually in these settings, again, it works out like this. There's something that the world likes and we want to be different than the world. So logically, we, even though God doesn't call it a sin, it's better for no Christian to ever have anything to do with it. So let's forbid it from all Christians. That'll really make us look different than the world. So imagine if a Christian decided that Christians are way too fat. And so what do we do? Well, maybe it's because we eat too many desserts, and so let's make a plan to protect and ensure that we are better than the world. So now, and from this day forward, we forbid all believers from eating chocolate. Hey! There's a rebellion in the body already. Or bacon. Or bacon-wrapped chocolate. It doesn't... Or chocolate-dipped bacon, which is actually surprisingly tasty. Um... How would we respond if somebody tried to make a rule like that? (laughs) No, thank you. Hopefully, we would respond like Paul and say, Hey, it might seem like these rules carry wisdom. It might seem that these are good, strict, hardcore rules to make us mature. Paul says in verse 23, They are of no actual power. They have no value to restrain the nature of sin. Let me ask you something, Christians. Have you ever had your sin nature changed by you obeying a rule? No. You never have. If I tell you, no chocolate, no chocolate, no chocolate, no chocolate, no chocolate, does that make you not want chocolate? I want chocolate now! Right? So, let me ask you, Travis, are you saying that there should be no rules about how we behave? Of course not, I'm not saying that. God has given clear commands in his word. God has made clear standards of behavior. Right? Don't you think there are enough rules in the Bible already? The more we sin, the more rules we end up with. Think about it. How many rules were there when Adam and Eve were in the garden? How many? How many rules did God give when the people were at Mount Sinai? Ten. Have you seen today's tax code? (laughs) Sin brings extra rules God didn't make. Now, here's the thing. Be careful 
not to take the standards that God gave us, extract from them extra applications that you personally like, and then apply those rules to the lives of others. Let me meddle. There are some Christians that, let's say, there may be a holiday that that Christian chooses not to celebrate because of its pagan roots. And right now you don't know if I'm talking about Halloween or Christmas, by the way. Or Easter. Now, here's the thing. Maybe somebody won't have a Christmas tree in their home because of the secular perversion of the holiday or because of the druid worship that trees coming inside the house in wintertime reminds them of. If somebody has that rule for themselves and their family, that's fine. But other people will celebrate with a pretty tree and remember Jesus with great joy. And you know what? That's fine too, so long as neither one says the other people around them have to go with them. Right? Am I for trick-or-treating? It totally depends on what kind of candy you're giving out. (laughs) If you're giving out Smarties, I'm not in. If you're giving out gum, I'm not in, just so you know. Or an apple. I had people used to give apples. No. Give me a real full-size Snickers and we're talking. I'll dress up like Batman for that. That's silly. I'd dress up like Batman anyway. Uh, So... (laughs) But there are some Christians who believe that, you know, you can't... Again, Christians, there, there are Christians that say, no Christian under any circumstance could ever have a sip of anything with alcohol in it because it's a bad witness and it might lead one toward drunkenness. Now, if someone chooses that they will not personally drink alcohol, that's a fine standard for that person. But other people believe that God has given Christians the freedom to enjoy a drink so, as long, so long as they're not hurting others with it and they're not getting drunk. And you know what? That's a fine standard too. Obey the word of God. Don't make other people follow your preferences as if they're God's standards. That is no way to make somebody more righteous. I could give you a thousand more examples. But see, here's the thing. Moralistic legalism is what the Pharisees often did. The Pharisees did not hate God. In fact, the Pharisees wanted to help God. They wanted people to worship God. But the Pharisees thought that God had not been clear enough with the rules God gave. And so they decided to take it upon themselves to help. And that's how they went from a rule that says don't do work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees came up with rules like, okay, here's exactly how much you can carry for exactly how far before it's work. The Pharisees actually had rules that said things like, you're not allowed to carry more milk on the Sabbath than you could carry in your mouth. That was a written rule. Whose mouth, by the way? Because I know folks who could carry a lot more milk than others. It's a funny joke. And don't look at anybody in the room when I said it, by the way. What's the antidote from being those kinds of people? How do we avoid religious legalism or charismatic mysticism or moralistic legalism? Here's how. Love Jesus. Cling to Jesus in every area. The gospel is the antidote. And when I say gospel, what do I mean? I mean this. Here's good news for you. God sent his son to earth to be the savior for everybody who would come to him. And you and I are sinners and we deserve the judgment of God. And Jesus lived out the perfection that God requires. And Jesus died as a sacrifice 
sacrifice to pay the price for all the sins of the children of God. And Jesus rose from the dead, proving that his work was complete. And Jesus says that anybody who will turn from trying to rule their own lives and submit themselves to Jesus, if they'll believe in Jesus like that, they will be forgiven. And Jesus promises that he is going to return to this world and he's going to set right what has gone wrong because of our sin. And he's going to live forever with the people that he's rescued. This is what we cling to instead of rules and ceremonies and ecstatic experiences. This is better, way, way better than all that. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is everything we need. He doesn't require religious ceremonies for you to be his child. He doesn't call you to seek out mystical, charismatic experiences to be his child. He doesn't call you to live a life that's more strict than the word of God clearly commands to be his child. He calls you to himself. So love the word of God and cling to Jesus with everything you've got. And in that you will find yourself free from the dangers in this passage. Way back at the beginning, I read you that story from MacArthur's book about a pastor who walked way down the road in a winter evening. And that reminds us of what we've seen here. Remember, that man went through misery, though he had the key to the house in his pocket the whole time. Please don't go through misery. We have the key to a joyous life in the Lord. And that key is not extra ceremonies or extra revelation or extra rules. The key is to love Jesus through the clearly written word of God. So let's be people who turn away from the extras and cling to Christ with everything we've got. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, there's so much more in this than we even had time to get to. And there's so much more gospel grace than we've gotten to today. But I would ask you this, God. Let us love you. Let us obey your commands. We're not against obedience. But let us not ever be so foolish as to think that there are more commands that you should have given that you didn't. Or that there's more revelation that we should have that we don't have. Or that there are more experience we should have than you've given us. Or that there's some ceremony that's going to take us to the next level. God, let us cling to Jesus for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.